Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. Another great D2C episode for you today as I'm interviewing Chris Mandarino, the founder of Life Fuel, who sell plant-based nutritional products. Chris is super focused on the customer experience, not just for new customers, which is, of course, really important, but also for existing and returning customers. A lot of brands think that, you know, the hard work is done once you've acquired a customer, but that's far from the truth. Chris is going to talk us through his approach to customer experience, how they adopt tech early to help with friction, and why communication with the customer is crucial. Let's get Chris on now. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me today. Um, do you want to just quickly introduce yourself, um, give us a bit of your background and how you've got to where you are with, uh, with Life Fuel? Yeah, certainly happy to be here. Uh, so my name is Chris Mandarino, founder and CEO at Life Fuel. We are a, a plant-based nutrition company. Um, kind of my journey as to how I kind of arrived at founding this company um, and, and now operating it for the past seven years is uh, I was an athlete pretty much my entire life. Uh, I grew up playing a bunch of different sports, ultimately focused on uh, football, American football, that is. And um ultimately uh, walked on at Berkeley, played collegiate football, started as a fullback for four years, and then was able to pursue my childhood dream of playing in the NFL. And it was really that time and really actually post-football career where um, I really took a vested interest in the health and nutrition and saw how powerful that could be for performance, but also you know for long, longevity and overall health and wellness. And what I saw was a massive you know, gap or a problem in the market where, you know, a lot of Western uh, societies, especially in the United States, you know, we're got more abundance of calories, we're <laughs> overfed, but if you look at uh, nutrition, we're actually undernourished, right? And you've got a whole host of different, you know, lifestyle preventable illnesses that are direct um, cause of, you know, the fuel that we're putting in our body. And, um, in between post football career and um, starting Life Fuel, actually uh, was a territory manager and sales rep for Metagenics. It's you know a major multinational corporation now. Uh, that really takes a functional approach to uh, wellness and um, you know the science as to which they kind of produce nutritional products is um, world class. And it really learned a ton about like the science and product formulation at that time, but saw a larger opportunity to take that to the direct consumer marketplace and kind of not have to go through, you know, a natural path or, you know, doctor or something to gain access to this education and these you know, fuel sources that can be so powerful for optimal health and wellness. And that was really the, the primary concept that launched Life Fuel is to one, make it easier for people to get their daily nutrients that they're missing um, from food. If you look at the statistics, it's like 99% of us don't get, you know, the nutrition we need, even if you're eating a healthy diet, which very yeah. few of us even do in the first place. And so Life Fuel was born out of that concept to just make that easy and attainable um, so that, you know, you are getting your daily nutrients and only then can you look, feel, and actually perform your best every day. Cool. Sounds good. How long have you been doing this now? It's been about seven years now. So we, it's about two years, just back-end business development, product formulation, 
you know, uh, when we launched uh, BioFuel seven years ago, there wasn't really a ton of options in terms of plant-based nutrition in the space. You had like the incumbents like Vega and Garden of Life, but, you know, none of them really tasted good. It's not something that I could wrap my mind around, you know, doing as a daily, um, you know, shake or something that I, I wanted to take. And so like, it was a lot of just product development, innovation, trying to one, include all these you know, amazing nutrients, uh, to maintain that nutritional integrity without dumping a bunch of sugar and other stuff in it. Um, and three, just kind of making that taste yeah. amazing. And so we finally kind of nailed it. We've constantly iterated and we're going through a, a new iteration now, uh, you know, five years later to kind of improve upon what we've built and take in all that user feedback um, to continue to evolve the product and the business moving forward. Yeah, I know what you mean about the taste. Um, I I tried. Um, uh, I, I think it's a UK, a very UK focused company at the moment called Huel, H U E L. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I I remember trying them when they were I think still quite new, and it was it was there was no flavour. It was I think they listed it as unflavoured or plain yeah, or something. Right, <laughs> and that on its own, I just I couldn't couldn't drink. It was. Yeah. yeah, not not great. So I found myself having having to add like a an extra scoop of protein powder or something just to make it right um, tolerable. Tolerable, but I, <laughs> I think that's that's developed a lot more now. Um, so I, th- yeah. I think they've got a lot more options. Um, so what do you think has been kind of the biggest contributor to growth um, for you guys? Um, maybe in the last last couple of years. Yeah, I would say uh, the biggest contributor to growth is, is really just been, you know, persistence in us, like continuing to look outside the box as to, you know, how we can build uh, a community around, you know, these uh, core values, right? And so, um, you know, we haven't done a ton of, you know, advertising or digital marketing, right? Um, that most DTC brands have kind of depended on, right? We've kind of looked at, okay, because we, we bootstrapped the business for the first three and a half years. And so we were always very mindful about um, creating a sustainable and profitable business. And so we really needed to lean into by like, creating an amazing product experience, customer experience, right? Because um, retaining those customers that are coming to us is super important, right? That allows our the marketing dollars that we do spend to go a lot further because now we're creating, you know, a better health TV uh, model as opposed to the churn and burn, trying to get as many customers as we can as quickly as we can and losing them <laughs> at that same velocity. And so I think it's really been um, really, really leaning into that, that product development process, the customer experience piece of things. And that certainly hasn't been a perfect scenario, especially over the past few years. We've certainly struggled and been challenged with a lot of the, you know, um, updates and, and challenges in supply chain and, you know, trying to communicate that as best we can to customers. But I would say that is the, the one thing that's really contributed to, you know, sustainable organic growth is just like that customer experience, um, taking care of people, understanding that this is a daily, you know, habit that they're trying to perform. They're trying to look and feel better, right. Using our products. And so we need to make that easy. We need to make that enjoyable. We've got to remove a lot of these, you know, frustrations and continue to iterate and develop, um, you know, updated formulations, new products using, you know, 
that that feedback. Um, I would say the other thing too that we've done is you know content marketing and really starting to think about how SEO can be a driver for growth and bring in kind of more organic traffic um, for us. And and those have really been the two things that um, have you know helped us build the business. And then there's the Amazon side of things, which is always kind of a catch twenty two, right? It's one of those things that we've kind of had to do, right? Because there's just so many eyeballs and, and people directly looking to purchase our products through that channel. And it's really provided the you know, cash flow and profitability that we can then use to really build that brand that we sought out to achieve. Um, and so I think really having robust Amazon listings and capitalizing on keywords and the, the demand for um, what we're doing in this space has been extremely advantageous um, and allowed us, it's fueled the growth for all the DC stuff. Yeah. And do you, do you spend time trying to, you know, do, do you put effort into trying to move people away from Amazon to the brand? So once you, once you acquire them through Amazon? Yeah, it's a tricky scenario, right? Um, you know, I think you know, our, our mindset is we're agnostic as to where the first purchase happens. Ideally, we would love everybody to start their journey with us directly at Lightfield, but we're also <laughs> realistic and know that that's not the case, right? And what we are trying to do is we're trying to deliver a better customer experience when you buy direct. We're, we actually sell um, the best price is always through our website, right? The subscription service is through our website. So if you want all... You know, if you want the best value, then you come direct. So Amazon is a great discovery platform. So we're doing certain things um, that, yes, you know, make people aware. And I think, you know, ultimately, you've got people that are going to just buy on Amazon because it's easy. It's same day, next day, two day or whatever. Yeah. And that's all they care about. But people who really want to engage with the brand, you know, be first in line for new products and really... Um, Really care about like the the mission and the core values and you know, everything that we're trying to do beyond you know obviously the product side of the business will eventually come to us directly. But yeah, we definitely uh, deployed some strategies to kind of make that more natural. Obviously, Amazon's kind of a black box as to what you know details you can get from yeah. the uh, customer. But there are some interesting strategies that you can deploy to kind of um, make that. A, a more natural uh, and easy transition um, from Amazon back to the website. Yeah, it's some of the, the post-purchase stuff. So, you know, once they've got the product in their hands, kind of, I, I suppose, using the product or, or even just the leaflet or insert or something to say, this is what you're going to get if you come to us directly. Correct. Yeah, and that's sometimes that's tricky, right? Depending on your product, right? So our product only has primary packaging, right? So it's not like we can put a leaflet insert. We can't do one of those like yeah. little neck tags that you put like on a supplement bottle, right? And if you have secondary packaging, that's way easier. Um, we are testing is like actually stickering those um, bags, or if you have digital printing, you can play around with QR codes, and you have to be. Smart, you know, obviously within Amazon's terms, terms of service, but there are different things that you can do to kind of utilize those technologies um, in spite of not having secondary packaging to drive repeat purchases, and potentially direct um, stuff. So, yeah, because um, you mentioned obviously customer experience is really important to you. Have you got some examples of, uh, you know, what, what does a good customer experience look like to you uh, for Life Fuel? Um, what are, what are some examples of things you do that you, you feel really nail it? Yeah. So I think, you know, we're retooling our customer experience, you know, um, process now in terms of like, what is, 
what is that experience when the package arrives at your doorstep? Like, I think that's the final piece that we haven't really done the best job, right? Because it's, you know, you're sending product to Amazon, you're also trying to improve that direct consumer uh, experience. So right now those kind of look more or less the same. You're going to get better, like hands-on um, support when you come to us. So if you have any, you know, uh, issue in terms of like delays or delivery, right. We try to make ourselves readily available, pick up the phone um, and just kind of work through that with customers. We really take uh, the approach that you know, something's gone wrong, let us, fix it. Don't put the onus back on the customer to try to figure out what's, you know, with UPS or where the package is. Let's get another one out. If we can recoup that cost, then, you know, we'll, it's our duty to kind of um, fix it. And so I think a lot of times taking, you know, the cost out of that scenario and not just like kind of, you know, scrutinizing every penny that, you know, you know, it might be unprofitable for us to ship another bag out, right. Or express delivery when somebody's going into surgery the next day and they need the product. Right. But those are the yeah. things that we're happy to do because that's the, the level of uh, service that we want to deliver to our customers because, you know, so many have become so dependent on using this on a daily basis that when those routines get disrupted, you know, kind of throws everything else off. And so I think it's being mindful about that. It's, it's like, you know, it, it, you're, you're taking that hit, you're kind of giving someone that, that discount for that one month or whatever, that yeah. subscription period, but you're then potentially keeping them for 12 more months. Exactly. And the alternative by saying to them, well, sorry, it's your problem. Figure right. it out with UPS. <laughs> do you then lose that customer and it's done? Yeah, exactly. Right? And exactly. then you've got probably probably a bad review, definitely not a good review. You're not going to get any of that word of mouth that, or you're not going to get any positive word of mouth. You probably are going to get that negative stuff. Yeah. So yeah, you know, for the sake of, I, I don't know what the product costs you, but I don't know, let's say it's 20 to $50 or something to to just re refulfill that product. Uh, you, yeah, like you say, you're going to earn that back uh, yeah. in the long term by, by keeping that customer happy. Absolutely. And I, I think the other part too is just, honestly, picking up the phone and, and calling people, right? And I've done a lot of that personally myself, right? And one, just to interview and, and kind of um, get insight from customers about, you know, maybe things that we should think about as we evolve and look at different ways to invest in the business, which is extremely some of the most useful feedback you, you can ever get, right? It's using that from the most loyal customers. But two, uh, just picking up the phone call, being able to kind of totally reverse a terrible, like negative experience yeah. where people are literally up in arms like you'd be surprised that's some of the nasty <laughs> voicemails that you get in emails and it's it is crazy but just like taking the time saying hey this is chris i'm the founder of flood fuel you know i hear you let me share a little bit <laughs> about what's going on behind the scenes, right? Because you can't expect the, the customer necessarily be privy to all the challenges that we're experiencing as a business with supply chain. I mean, and it nor is it their job or duty, right? Like our duty to the customer is to get them <laughs> an amazing product when we say we're going to and try to make that, you know, as easy of an experience as possible. And on the backside, manage it however we need to to make that happen. And so I think that's 
that's always you know served us well is really empathizing, listening to the customer, taking the time to say, hey, you're appreciated. Hey, here's what we can do. And let me just kind of share, you know, a little bit more about where we're at on our journey, right? Because a lot of times we've we have invested a lot into brand. I think, you know, it's not easy to tell that we're this, you know. <laughs> small bootstrappy you know um young yeah. company right on, on surface level it might you know look like we're vega or somebody else who's got you know 100 employees and you know entire marketing department and customer service department and everything else right and so you know just let them know that we are doing the best that we can their concerns are heard and we're actioning those items on our side to to you know um create a yeah. positive experience but I think that's the way it should be. I think a lot of companies have this this view that once they've shipped, that's it. They're, yeah. That's their responsibility done. It's now the courier's responsibility, but right. the customer doesn't see that way. The customer's yeah. <laughs> issue is always with you. You know, if the if the product comes damaged, they don't they don't complain to the courier. They complain to you and say, "Well, this turned up damaged. You need to reship it." Um, what is interesting though is. Uh, and someone posted about this on LinkedIn not too long ago. Um, I think he, he he said he'd run a test about courier um, options, saying, you know, uh, you know, you'll get free shipping with this courier or a, sh- a standard shipping with this courier. And what they found was actually by by putting the name in there, they had a negative impact on conversion rates because people always have the because even though that responsibility is with the merchant. People still have those negative views of the courier. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this weird, yeah. like they know the courier. They, they have issues with couriers. They think the couriers are terrible. And um, we actually got one bit of feedback uh, with one of my clients, which specifically said, uh, "Because you ship with Hermes, that was the reason they didn't buy." Really? They oh, saw wow. that piece of information yeah. and went, "Because you, I, I, I don't like Hermes. I'm, I'm not going to buy from you because you use Hermes." Yeah. And. Uh, uh, it's just this really weird it's a tricky one too right because you don't own that piece of the, the supply chain you know and then i would say yeah. too that's kind of the, the amazon effect of things right because amazon has done such an amazing job at getting products to people very quickly transparent packaging like those you know text or email communicate like you know where everything is and it's, it's very very consistent but the reality is like for most D2C brands, pretty much all don't control that part of the supply chain, you know, and so it makes it super tough. It's the same with all couriers because even I know Amazon does own it and kind of controls it, but they can't really control the actual actions of those employees or Correct. contractors right. on, on the day, right? I've had people who, so I have a ring doorbell. Uh-huh. So, you know, you, you push the button, it pings me on my phone and says someone's at my door. Yeah. Right. The first thing I, the first notification I got was sorry from Amazon. Sorry, we missed you. Um, we've left the package next door with your neighbor. And I'm like, I'm in the house. Yeah. <laughs> I'm picking up my phone. I'm seeing on the screen there are no notifications from Ring. Right. No one ever rang that doorbell. But then, I also remember feeling really positive towards Hermes because I remember them being. I think it was I bought from. Uh, I think it was Marks and Spencers, and the the link up between Marks and Spencers and Hermes was great. Yeah. They were saying, you know, we've we've prepared, prepared the order for delivery. We've now handed the order over to Hermes. And then shortly afterwards, got the message from Hermes saying, we've picked up your deliver- your order from Marks and Spencers. It's now on the way. You're going to get it on this day at this time. And then on yeah. the day, your, your delivery slots this hour. 
So I've had that great experience and, and the product did turn up. And yeah, there are other people who will say, no, the terrible always use DPD. Yeah. And there'll be other people who have used DPD and hate it. Yeah, I think that's a good point, right? The more transparent you can be about, you know, what's going on, I think the better that experience will be from the customer standpoint, right? The delays you can't control, right? But if they know, okay, uh, there is a delay and here's why, right? One, you know, if we know that, we can help to action it. But two, um, they say, okay, you know, now I'm adjusting my expectations. I thought I was going to get a Wednesday. Turns out it's going to come on Friday, right? And if it's something bigger than that, maybe I'm picking up the call, calling my fuel as to, or the carrier as to what's uh, really going on. And so that's where we've kind of um, uh, made some investment in terms of you know using technology to make that more transparent. You have you know either SMS or email that's communicating those handoffs between you know our. Uh, warehouse, where it's at, and with the carrier, you know, if it's going from, you know, UPS to final mile, USPS or whatever, that's more clear. Um, and then if for some reason there's an outlier event where it doesn't, you know, meet that, you know, criteria where it should be moving from warehouse to, you know, delivery within a certain time frame, then our customer service team can get a notification and action those items directly with the carrier. So it's really having access to the information, making that transparent. And it's also an opportunity for brands to kind of own that part of it, right? Instead of just having the Shopify, you know, standard USPS tracking info, whatever, and then they go to USPS, uh, you can create a, a branded page that's linking in all those different carriers. It's really taking ownership over that um, part of the experience with the customer. And I think that's another important way to deliver value. And it's also another selling opportunity, right? Because if you look at um, a lot of times, like those uh, delivery order confirmation, delivery emails, those are often some of the most open emails, right? And so then if you're sending people to, you know, branded experience, you have another opportunity to re-engage with your customers at that point of time instead of just sending them to a carrier website. Yeah. Do you have a, a recommended tool that you use for that? Yeah. So we um forget the name of the tool that we started with, but we re- oh we we used late shipment um to start. Uh we looked at a, a number of other things. We're now using Rush. Uh, which has been good. The team was excellent to work with. They integrated all the, you know, flows into our uh, ESP. They uh, working on like the gorgeous integration, which is what we use for customer service. Um, so they've been, they've been awesome. It's very fair in terms of like pricing, you know, it's, it's kind of a no brainer in terms of getting that turned on. We've also looked at um, one, I think it's more for, yeah, there's, there's route which a lot of people might be familiar with, which actually goes step beyond where they're kind of providing insurance on the packaging there uh, on the, the order. Um, I think there's even more transparency into how it's kind of moving um, through like that delivery process. I don't know if they have the final mile technology um, where it kind of shows like an Uber of where your yeah. packaging is, but I've seen uh, some brands use that, which is quite cool, but um a lot of the couriers have that now. So yeah. I would have thought that would just be an in, it's a deeper integration with the courier to to just you use that tracking info. Um, yeah, I didn't display it on their own map because some of yeah. them some of them are quite old looking. Right. <laughs> um, um not that that really matters as long as you can see where yeah. where the order is. But 
yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah have, exactly. Just one app. Or, yeah. Yeah, potentially an app. Yeah, so I think whatever, like there's a lot of stuff in that space now that kind of allows you to easily kind of create that that experience. But yeah, we're, we're happy with Rush. Um, I think Route does look interesting. Route was kind of less applicable to our business, right? It doesn't really make a ton of sense for us to like ensure every <laughs> product that yeah. goes out. Oftentimes we're better off just, you know, paying for you know, a new, you know, replacement or whatever, but I could definitely see it with, you know, maybe clothes or higher, you know, um, price, you know, whether it's electronics or beds or whatever makes a, a ton of sense to have something like that. Yeah. Especially if, uh, some of those higher value products might be quite infrequent purchases. Yeah, so exactly right. You you don't want to ship them yeah. another one because then you just you just you got one chance. That's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, cool. Um, so what's uh, what's been your biggest challenge recently? Supply chain. It's <laughs> it's uh, been a beast to say the least. Um, and just kind of give you more uh, context on that front. So you know we and in getting clear communication from suppliers has been really been challenging, right? Everybody's kind of on reduced workloads. Everybody's still very much dealing with, um, you know, COVID and, and how to manage that, right? And then, you know, you've got just major disruptions from raw material providers, packaging suppliers, like every, every different part <laughs> of the supply chain has been impacted, right? And so from a business standpoint, that makes things extremely challenging, right? From going from you know, what should be a 10 to 12 week lead time um that's kind of we're running our forecasting and like seeing sales velocity and saying okay like do we have enough buffer here um well let's say 16 weeks to be safe and then 16 goes to 20 21 22 you know that's a considerable amount of time especially for you know a business that doesn't have you know 100 different SKUs, right in that case okay you're out of stock on one SKU, big deal hopefully some of those other ones you know carry you through, um, you know, if it's your hero product, okay. Yeah. You're going to take a, a beating probably, but even more so for us, right. Our hero product drives about 80% of our, our revenue. So when that goes out of stock, um, you know, talking about, you know, significant kick to the business. Right. And then the other challenge that comes along with that is, we don't have clear and consistent communication from, you know, um, the manufacturing side. It makes it impossible to set that customer expectation and say, okay, like here's when we actually expect it in stock. Um, you know, you're just faced with all these new sets of business challenges. Do we stop selling the product, right, and not capturing that revenue altogether? Are we close enough where we can, you know, have it shipped in like two to three weeks and just kind of manage? that communication and, and uh, customer expectations. And, you know, that's been really tough, right? Because, you know, the first time it happened, we didn't, you know, we were unprepared. We didn't do a great job of communicating that to customers because one, we didn't really have any information to communicate because yeah. we were just in the dark, right? And that trickled all the way down to uh, our customers. And they were, you know, rightfully frustrated and saying, you know, you guys are blowing it. Like, I'm going to go somewhere else and find, you know, somebody who can deliver this, you know, product for me. Um, and it's tough. Yeah, well, like what you said earlier, you know, your customers, uh, it's, I'm assuming it's a daily use product, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they get to the habit of using it every day. So if that gets disrupted, 
Yeah. Yeah. They and, and then the communication is not great, and and they don't really know what's going on. It's do I stick around and wait for this company to 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 send me a new one in a week, maybe, yeah. two, <laughs> or do I just jump online and buy something else from well, potentially from Amazon? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, Amazon, or or even worse, yeah, go sign up with a competitor, competitor or something. Yeah. Um, so I suppose for you as well, there's that uh, that question of we've got this amount of stock, which is going to last us this amount of weeks, but we're not expecting restock for plus two weeks. Right. So do we stop acquiring customers and just focus on making sure we retain everyone? And that's the, and that's the scenario that we kind of have had to run through. Like we're, we're in that same situation again, right? And it's like, okay. And that's, I guess, kind of bringing it full circle. That is the value of being a direct customer with us. We can prioritize, you know, our subscription customers, right? Okay. When there's limited supply available. We're serving those customers first, right? Cause they have made this, you know, demonstration of loyalty that they're have made this a, a part of their daily routine. So we need to make sure that those um, customers are getting their product first and we're at least presented with another option um, that can meet their needs in this um, time where we're uh, in a supply chain crunch. Um, so yeah, I think that that's one way that we've been able to kind of create this like VIP tier of you know, customers and really demonstrate that, hey, we value your business. We're going to do the best we can to kind of take care of you during you know, these, these challenging times. Yeah, I mean, those repeat customers... They're the ones who, if if you can, you know, if it means stopping acquiring new customers or, or switching off the the single purchases, but yeah. you keep the the subscribers happy, then next month those subscribers are still there. Exactly. Whereas you don't necessarily know that someone who makes a single purchase is going to come back. Right. Exactly. Right. It's obviously not a decision you want to have to make, but <laughs> it's if you've got to make that decision, it I guess it should be relatively simple to say. We've got to go with the guys who, who are kind of committed and, yeah. and are likely to keep buying. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's another, you know, benefit in you know any DTC company that has the opportunity, especially consumable. It's almost no brainer to have to develop that subscription base of customers. One, because you have more predictable, you know, revenue. You can really use that to kind of uh, grow the business. Um, more pragmatically uh, until you're kind of sheltered a little bit from, you know, these out-of-stock issues because there's probably other things that you can do to still capture that revenue, uh, drive the business, even if you don't have, you know, um, stock available uh, immediately. Uh, the other thing too that's been you know, a big blessing for us is inventory financing, right? And so, you know, early days of being, you know, these company, you're just, trying to figure out cash flow like where can i you know a lot of people just go out and raise a bunch of money right you know that works for some people but you're also diluting yourself down to nothing if it's all you know tied up in the inventory because the more you grow the more that you're gonna have to you know raise just to you know <laughs> keep up yeah. with the inventory for me that never made sense like if we're gonna go raise a bunch of money it should be invested in growth um uh, growth initiatives, product development, doing like very, you know, creative, interesting things that are, you know, really taking leaps and bounds forward for the brand. Um, and so once you've kind of established a track record of success, you found that product market fit. Now there's these other, you know, financial vehicles that you can go out, tap into. Yeah. You're paying, you know, a percentage on top of that, but you know, what we've been able to do is we've got you know, great terms with uh, our financial 
partner. Um, you know, it's actually baked into our cost of goods sold, and we're not paying you know um, on those units anymore until they actually leave the warehouse. And so that's considerable when you're looking at 24 week you know, uh, lead times now, right? And then, you know, the final unit out might be another, you know, 24 weeks on top of that, the length of time that, you know, um, you're not tying up all that capital just to have it sit on a shelf that can be deployed into, you know, marketing activities, growing your internal team and doing all these other things. So that is really significant. It's been a huge help um, for us. Um, and like, we've already, we don't even have our next, um, round of products in house yet, but we've already, you know, kicked off that next PO to now just for this, because we've got access to that funding that can just kind of help to, uh, make this more, uh, streamlined. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, you touched on kind of customer communications a little bit earlier. So I just want to go into that a little bit more. Um, maybe a little bit from the marketing side, um, but obviously you said it's really key to communicate, right? So if you do have those delays and things, just at least email people straight away, maybe an SMS, yeah. worst case scenario, or, or the, the, in the worst situations, pick up the phone and speak to people. Um, so how has your process changed over the last, uh, maybe the last couple of years or or longer if it, uh, if it has taken longer? Um, yeah, well, what would you say is key to that, uh, the, the process there? Yeah, I think um, the big key, you know, in the early days, you know, is <laughs> bootstrap business, you're doing all this yourself, right? So you're <laughs> developing products, you're, you know, managing customer service, and you, you know, get to an inflection point where it's like, oh, it's impossible for me to continue doing all this myself and grow the business, right? So one, you know, getting that help, um, you know, we um, worked with like virtual assistants over in the Philippines, like amazing, like, you know, a compliment to what we're doing as a business. We've also discovered platforms like TalentPop who actually help do the whole interviewing, hiring process to give you a list of candidates that are a good fit for the business, do all the video interviews, and then kind of bring that to you and have a uh, collaborative conversation about, okay, who do you think is going to be the best fit to grow your customer experience uh, team? So that's been awesome. You, You definitely need the human capital to be able to, you know, manage that. The other thing too is, um, you know, systems, right? And so we use Gorgeous. It's been, you know, great. So instead of having those reps jump into, you know, Shopify and all these different places to find out what's going on with a customer, now everything is there, a centralized dashboard within Gorgeous. Um, you know, we've moved our subscriptions over from Recharge to a tool called Skio because that's more essentially integrated with like the way that orders appear in Shopify before. It's a very clunky, challenging process. You have to go into Recharge. It's not communicating directly with Shopify. It's a total nightmare right now with Skio. Everything's there and gorgeous, super easy for customers to manage um, and very easy for our uh, customer experience team to manage as well. Um, And then we use Slack for just ongoing day-to-day like internal communication, also very easy to integrate, you know, other teams, external teams into those communication channels like TalentPop kind of helps to oversee like our CX process and make sure that our reps are, are really um, held accountable for, you know, the, the daily tasks that they're um, 
in charge of. And, and then, you know, just giving them ownership, I think is the last thing into really handling those conversations and those challenging situations with, with customers, right? That's not micromanaging the process and saying, Hey, like, you know, always lead with, you know, making the customer happy. Like you have some, you know, free reign here, you know, get as much information you can ask, you know, these types of questions really understand, you know, what is the root cause and and try to kind of triage that. And then, you know, just always lead with, you know, what you feel is right. And then we have the data that we need to say, okay, well, this is a, (laughs) just a bad customer, right? Every time, you know, we said something to them, there's a problem, right? Then maybe they're not the best one for my fuel, right? Or maybe we need to kind of be, a little bit more assertive as to what, because we have, you know, this, this pattern of stuff. But um, I think those things, right. Systemize, systematizing it, making sure you have some sort of operational platform and then, you know, just kind of um, empowering our team to um, really action any issues that, that do come up. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of um, when I was at a company called Gamesys uh, here in the UK, it's a big gambling uh, group. Um, we, we'd have kind of triggers to identify bad customers. Not not in the way you were describing. They weren't difficult customers, but we knew yeah. that they weren't valuable customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically it was things like lapse prevention campaigns, right? So if we, we'd be able to connect up all the data across the brands to say, if this person has had, you know, X number of lapse prevention campaigns on this brand and they start an account on on this other brand, we're already scoring them low mm. from a, their, their, their baseline is low because we're saying we already know that they're not a very valuable customer. Right. They pretty much only play when there's a bonus available, never really put in their own cash and stuff apart from the minimums, yeah. minimums required. So not going to make much money. So what's the point? You know, we'll keep them happy. We'll keep them, we'll give them the bonuses every now and again, but we're not going to give them the big bonuses. Yeah. And I, I think the analogy for like the DVC world is like those customers are only going to buy on discount, right? Or, yeah. you know, <laughs> always asking you, it's just like just destroying, you know, all margin on the product and you know, want it, you know, like crazy yeah. cheap and don't understand that at, at the end of the day, you got to make the buck somehow, right? Otherwise you don't have uh, a business. And sometimes those are, can be the most, challenging uh customers to to deal with so well they're the ones who also are the ones who complain about anything yeah exactly right? it, it <laughs> was it, the product arrived an hour outside of the delivery yeah. slot yeah. what are you going to do about it right, right. <laughs> no, not a lot <laughs> yeah um it, yeah well it's, it's the same with everything isn't it Every, everyone says you know your, your cheap customers your cheap clients are also the ones who are the most dd the most demanding yeah, um, exactly. It's not, it's not just with the with the discount customers. Um, but it, yeah, sorry, Games says we also had the the VIPs. Yeah, right. And those were the people who got account managers, um, who'd have conversations with them, actually get to know them, um, almost like concierge style service mm-hmm. uh, for for gambling. Yeah, um, and uh, and and it's worth it, right? You give people these this better experience. Exactly. Um, you know, the, the, the the way I know it's bad because it's gambling, but the way gambling approaches this kind of uh, um, like like kind of RFM models, right? Mm-hmm. And those, and scoring of customers and segmenting by that is they do it really really well, yeah. Because they know that there are people who are just going to abuse the bonuses and that's it, and they know there are people who are going to just spend loads of money. They're really going to enjoy it. They're never going to complain, um, and it's great. I'm, I remember 
getting on a call with someone uh, or listening into a call. And uh, this person hadn't played for a little while. And so they were phoning up this VIP to just check in on them, see what's going on. And this person said, uh, the reason they'd stopped playing is because uh, at the time we were running a bingo competition um, and they were a slots player. And they said from their experience of in physical casinos, when physical casinos run bingo competitions, fewer people were on the slots machines. And so the slot machines paid out less or less frequently. And they just had that same view of the online experience. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this person had just spent, uh, I'm not sure what their actual, their actual spend was, but the amount they played was over a hundred grand. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? That they'd just played through slot machines. Yeah. And she, she said she wasn't interested in bonuses, didn't really care about bonuses, anything like that. Just, just wanted to play, wanted to have fun. Um, wouldn't mind getting a few free spins every now and again. Um, but for her, it was literally just, uh, it was a, it was fun, right? It was just yeah. a way to kill a bit of time. But then you've got the other people, the people who will do the minimum £10 deposit and play. And then the moment they lose all that, we'll leave a negative review and say, oh, it's all rigged. Uh, yeah. You know, the system's <laughs> against you. It's like, well, it's gambling. Yeah, of course. Everyone knows this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just amazing how pe people spend so much money and just not care because yeah. they've had fun and they've enjoyed the experience. Well, I think that brings up an, uh, an important and applicable point, right? It's those, you know, the psychographics and the behavior graphics that exist in these different customer cohorts, right? And, and it requires a different you know, strategy, communication, pulse um, for your VIP customers because they probably care. You don't need the big promotional marketing. They're happy with the product. You know, they're enjoying yeah. it. They've integrated it into their daily routine. So how can you kind of add value to those, you know, uh, that cohort of customers, show your appreciation for them, you know, really put them to the front of the line when you are launching a new product or, you know, have more direct conversations about, you know, feedback with the business versus, you know, your fringe comes to customers, they buy every, you know, three, six months only on discount, right? Or those customers who, you know, they're on their subscriber um, list, but they haven't made a purchase yet, right? And they need a little bit more nurturing, right? To really understand, you know, the value that they get from you. So each of those, you know, cohorts, cohorts should be, you know, uh, have a separate communication strategy around that, right? And um, that's where something like, you know, whether it's, Clavio or OmniSend or whatever, there's, you know, really good segmentation data to be able to utilize that and say, okay, you know, how do we you know, communicate with these different groups of customers? Because that can, if you're blasting your VIP customers constantly with same promotional emails that you're giving to those kind of fringe or kind of nurtured, they're going to get sick and tired of it. It's like, you, you guys are sending too many, you know, just marketing emails. I don't care, right? I'm already buying your product. Why are you trying to, you know, get me yeah. to buy it cheaper? You know, I'm happy. So. Yeah, yeah, especially with less subscribers. But I think a lot, yeah. a lot of businesses on that uh, don't they don't segment out the you know the discount people or the VIPs, but also yeah. they give everyone the same offer. Same discount. Yeah. So exactly. you might look at someone who's spending. You're going to have a group of people who will spend. You know, obviously depends on the business, but maybe fifty quid here and there on a purchase. Right. And then you've got other people who might come in and spend 500 right. every month. Yeah. And then you go and offer them a 10 pound discount or something. Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> right. 
This is nothing. Someone spending five hundred, it's the nothing. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. So, you know, that was another thing in in, in gambling that um, initially was it. It was quite. It's quite difficult with obviously the people who've never deposited before because you don't know what level they're at. But the because there's no product, right? There's no pricing. There's no products. Yeah. You you really can't tell. Like you you don't know if someone's going to deposit ten pounds or ten thousand. It could really be right. that different. Um, so I, w- I was working on them b- before I left. I was working with them on some kind of pre uh, pre deposit valuation, um, which would be you know have they got an account on another website, um, so we can actually just take that data and say well it's a VIP, so we know they're a VIP. Mm-hmm. But then also looking at um, it was things like you know what what advert have they come through? Did they come through like media or PPC? Did they come through a promotion? Um, how far through that sign-up process and, and deposit process did they get before dropping? Um, and then we we're also starting to look into things like postcodes, mm. right? Their, their address. Yeah. You know, are they in an affluent area, or how do people who how do our existing customers who live in that area compare to that? Uh, yeah, sorry. How do, how do people who live in that area look like as customers? And so, can yeah. we say, well, if everyone in this postcode is in a multi-million pound house and all deposit tens of thousands every month, it's a good chance this person will be as well. So let's give them a, a bigger discount. Right. But obviously this is, you know, this is a lot of work, um, you know, requires a, a, a pretty smart team to put this together. So it's not, sure. not something that any e-commerce <laughs> business can do, but yeah, um, it would be quite quite interesting uh, information if you could get it. Yeah. Yeah, I think and it's like just, you know, from a business owner standpoint, just, it, it can be very complicated <laughs> very quickly, right? Analytics can be overwhelming, but just starting to think there's little experiments that you can run and just kind of, okay, we've got two cohorts, right? And let's, you know, kind of adjust our communication strategy or offer around those two cohorts and, and see how that kind of evolves in, in your case, right? It could be, yeah. okay, we're going to offer hundred pounds off somebody when they or hundred pound match when somebody invests, you know, a thousand pounds to start their account versus somebody it could be a 20 for 20 based off demographic, you know, information that you have and that kind of hypothesis that you have, right? Because it's about, okay, let's just get this person into the system so they can start using the product and the service, right? Then, you know, it doesn't really matter, right? Because you've acquired that customer, and then if you're providing a good service or product, hopefully you're keeping the customer through that. So um, I think you get creative on that offer side. Yeah, I mean, it becomes uh, it's a hundred times easier with a with a digital product where you've got the data yeah. and usage as well, right? right? So in the gambling, we also looked at it, did a value calculation based off their first seven days. So how much they deposited, or you know, did they deposit and play immediately? Mm-hmm. Uh, if it wasn't immediate, it was how quickly after the deposit did they play? Um, how how quickly are they playing? Do they engage with certain like various games? Do they use the free games as well? You know, all these little signals which would add up and at the end of these seven days say, cool, we're going to put this person in this bracket. So now they're in probably not. I don't, I don't think you can go straight into VIP, but you'd be at a top level or you'd be at yeah. the bottom level, and then that would put you into CRM sequences. Mm-hmm. Which was great. Yeah. A bit more difficult for us at physical. <laughs> which is which is also, I think, from you know, a, from a physical product standpoint, right? Especially if you have subscription, right? You over time you can get some, you know, uh, 
pretty strong data about like when that turn cycle is right. So if you have a monthly thing and, and people are dropping off at, you know, canceling on day 25, or maybe it's further out, maybe they do two consecutive subscriptions, then drop off, then you can kind of create a more, you know, uh, aggressive or kind of nurturing communication around that, you know, churn point, right. And say, okay, this is our critical threshold right now. We got to figure out what's going on here at this event to make sure like we're communicating the value of sticking with this, you know, overall reinforcing kind of those reasons why people bought from us in the first place. Um, and, and, and I think that is a great place to, to start in terms of using that data to your advantage. Yeah. There'll be that kind of one to three month churn point, which is yeah. people aren't quite getting it, maybe not seeing the value. So how do you educate them? And then there's that, maybe 18 month churn point, which is, right. yeah, what's going on here? Why, why are people sticking around for 18 months? But that's our kind of average drop-off point for people. Are they getting bored? Do they want different flavors? Um, yeah, Correct. whatever. But, um, I mean, it, uh, so there is some easier stuff you can do at the, at the initial point. And it, and it, some of it is just around making people feel like, uh, happy towards the brand, right? Make them like the brand. Yeah, um, exactly. I remember when I was at Readly, a uh, digital magazine subscription, um, what we did was we sent out a postcard to people and sort of handwritten postcard. And initially I started sending it out when people were in their free trial period, um, which uh, we only did it for when they had a, a one month free trial. Um, and we found that if, if we sent it during the trial period, there's no impact at all. But if we sent it to customers who'd made their first payment, before their second one was due, that had a massive impact on uh, on retention yeah. and actual engagement with the product as well. So people reading more magazines, um, using the product on more on more devices as well, and that so that wasn't we weren't explaining the value of the product at all. It was literally just a like thanks mm. for signing up. We're Thank we're you. here if you've got yeah. any questions, and people obviously just really appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something that we used to do when I was starting customer service, actually, at my um, previous job before going into sales. But, like, we had cards and we would send them out to customers. And, like, it was amazing the response that we would receive just from taking the time to, you know, handwrite those things. And, you know, again, it's one of those things that maybe you can't do at scale, but, like, the, you know, <laughs> impact that it has for those customers is so significant, right? And, and sometimes it's taking doing those things that don't necessarily scale up that, you know, really create that, that brand and creating that loyal, you know, customer base. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually it just reminds me of another thing, uh, back at Readly as well, we had our fir the first kind of anniversary of the UK, um, office and we invited a load of customers. So I actually got on the phone, phoned up a load of customers, invited them to, to the event. Um, and then shortly before the event, phoned them up again to double check with them, make sure everything's okay. They're, they're aware of how to get there. They know where it is and all that. Um, unfortunately on the day I couldn't make it because I'd, I'd booked that day off and the day of the event had got shifted to that day. Um, so I wasn't there, but quite a few of the customers asked where I was actually asked to meet me oh, really? because I'd, I'd yeah. phoned them up and I'd spoken to them. Yeah. Um, and actually at another company we did, uh, we did a similar thing with emails. We were doing kind of plain text emails, which were like kind of onboarding. They weren't quite customer service, but they weren't marketing sales emails. They were kind of check-in emails. And I think it was from Ashley, 
I think the name was, um, and actually didn't exist in the team. But people yeah. <laughs> liked these emails so much, they were actually asking to speak to Ashley when they phoned up customer service or when they emailed in customer service, they said, you know, oh, can Ashley help because she reached out to me or something. And that, that was kind of when we realized we'd maybe not done it as, as we had intended. And we'd actually really given people the impression this was someone reaching out to them personally. Yeah. And wasn't, wasn't quite what we meant, <laughs> but, but it works. But I think that it's, you know, it is an interesting approach. It's something that we actually do a lot of as well, right? Because if you go to our website, you see, you know, our email communication, it's very much, you know, me. And, and that might not be a fit for, you know, every brand out there, but, you know, it is something that we didn't like. I always try to think of things from a customer perspective first, right? Like most the like sales promotional emails, like one, I either never see them or two, they're going, you know, somewhere else and I'm just kind of scanning. And then, you know, whereas like we try to lead with value storytelling, it's more just, you know, plain text emails and trying to really, you know, either motivate, educate <clears throat> our customers around kind of this, um, uh, how they can make this part of their their daily routine, how they can really uh, live their best life and, and create that you know one to one personalization. I think that's you know a very powerful way for brands to to stand out is is really do that because you know most of the time you're just getting you know the standard automated you know sales emails and people are kind of turning a blind eye to it. You know yeah. they don't really add much value. I mean, most of the time you can just tell from the subject line. Um, that, yeah, that is, exactly. It's a promotional message, and you can make a decision yeah. on the spot there and then whether you want to open it. Right. Um, the the thing a lot of people might might take from that is uh, go clickbaity, right? Yeah. And don't use the promotional message. Do something that uh, gets people's attention and gets them in, and then yeah, but that doesn't really work either. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think I I can scan through my inbox, my my kind of email, my marketing newsletter inbox, and I can probably picture exactly what a load of these emails are going to look like. Yeah. Um, and some of them I like, some of them because they're going to be interesting and useful and there's probably going to be some sort of personalized message. And there are others which I know are going to be a grid of products. Yeah. Um, with, probably, with probably a few grids of promotional uh, messages in there as well. And uh, quite often I find myself ignoring them and then eventually hitting sweep. Uh, and, and getting rid of them all. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I use a tool. I use two tools. So one is unroll.me and like all those things, like if they are no longer adding value, like from a newsletter standpoint or whatever, they go into that unroll.me and I get like a daily digest and you got like a little, the visual kind of roll up of all that. So very, it takes two seconds to scan, but boom, you've got a visual and a subject heading. And you know, very rarely am I ever even you know, clicking on any of those emails, but like the newsletters that are adding value, they stay in my inbox. I'm reading through those and most of them don't even contain much, you know, media at all. It's just, you know, articles that, you know, are uh, information rich that, you know, I find value in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Well, just before we finish, um, is there anyone in the kind of D2C marketing space that you'd want to go for lunch with? I think Nick Sharma would be an interesting guy to sit down with. I've been, uh, he's one of those guys I've been following his email uh, newsletter now for a while. Um, yeah, I think he delivers a lot of, you know, good value and actionable insight for, you know, founders. He gives a lot of the stuff away kind of 
for free a lot of times. So I think it uh, would be fun to sit down and pick his brain because he's got a good track record of success in the, in the D2C space. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting. I, I feel like this might be the third pod episode in a row where the guest has said Nick Sharma. Oh, really? That's interesting. Uh, yeah. So he's doing something right. <laughs> His name is, name is popping up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, cool. Uh, and what about a couple of marketing tools that you'd recommend to people? Maybe some of the less less obvious ones, so not like Clavio, um, for example. Yeah, so I think um, uh, Skio is one that I mentioned earlier on the call. So um, very common uh, subscription um, software that people use is, is Recharge for Shopify brands. Um, Skio has been uh, a great alternative for us. Um, and uh, the founder was awesome. Kenan there uh, was really hands-on and personal and helping us you know, migrate all the data over from Recharge to Skio. So that's been a big benefit. It loops in nicely with Gorgeous. I think, you know, again, making it tangible to this conversation, Gorgeous, obviously, um, for customer service makes things a lot easier. And then um, if you are looking to kind of hire out, build your customer service um, part of a business, talent pot, um, to make that you know, significantly easier for businesses, uh, finding those remote uh, workers who can really take ownership of you know, that uh, customer service team. They do a stand-up job you know, and, and save the founders a lot of time and energy yeah. trying to you know, do that on their own. Awesome, cool. And uh, if anyone wanted to reach out and ask ask you a question, what would be the best way of doing that? Um, yeah, so just email me, uh, Chris at LifeFuel or uh, LinkedIn. Um, I'm there as well. Those are typically you know the best places uh, to get my immediate attention. It's tough now because so many people are like, yeah, I think abusing those two as a communication channel. Uh, but I do lead through like you know pretty much all my emails and LinkedIn messages. So that would be the best um, direct point of contact. Awesome. Cool. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you all. This has been great. Something Chris really focuses on, as he mentioned, is lifetime value. For any business, particularly young subscription businesses, you just can't afford high customer churn. The cost of acquisition takes such a huge chunk of that initial purchase that you have to be working hard to make sure the customers come back again and again. And part of this is done through just making the customers' lives as easy as possible. Make sure your customer service is fantastic. Make sure you communicate transparently when customers order, you know, whether that's just to confirm the order or let them know of any problems. If you give your customers a fantastic experience, a better experience than they'll get through Amazon, which is very functional, you've got a much better chance of retaining those customers in the long term. If you'd like to reach out to Chris, you can find him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback, guest requests, please send them over to will at customersuclick.com. Next up, I've got Paul Davis joining me from Shoe Size Me, and we'll be exploring the online customer experience and in particular, the dreaded dead end. But until then, keep those customers clicking. Mm-hmm.